in connection with perhaps John the Baptist, different John, um, who might have been fulfilling this role as the friend of the bridegroom and preparing the way for Jehovah to come once again, restoring the covenant um, as he performed his ministry, restoring the covenant, restoring the gospel truths that had been lost. And, um, and so we have many dispensations where we have someone who's acting in behalf of the bridegroom as the friend of the bridegroom who makes the proposal to his people. It will always include the covenant. In fact, the covenant is considered the marriage and then also will give gifts from the bridegroom. So let's see if we can see that pattern as we go along. One of the easiest ways for us to kind of picture how all of this happens is to think about when Abraham sent his servant Eleazar to uh, go back to the covenant family to find a wife for his son Isaac. If you remember, it is really played out strongly with Isaac's sons, Jacob and Esau, how important it was that the children who uh, descended from Abraham, or we might say the children of the covenant, for them to marry within the covenant family. And in fact, all of that um, drama between Jacob and Esau as twins and, and uh, getting the birthright blessing, a story for a different day, is particularly underscored by the fact that we're told that Esau, before that event, had married outside of the covenant. And we're told that with the marriage outside of the covenant, Esau despised the birthright. That was even before the whole pottage scene, by the way. And so the sense was there's a, a portion of the, of the covenant family that is still living uh, back in the area of Haran, where uh, Abraham had left. And if you recall, he had left a brother there. And so we have some family members who um, seem to be honoring the covenant with Jehovah. And so Abraham sends Eleazar, his servant, to go and find a bride for Isaac. What an experience that must have been. And as Eleazar is crossing the desert, and he is wondering, how am I going to know who the right bride for, for Isaac is? He gives a little uh, charge to the Lord. He says, I'm going to be able to tell the girl that is the right one, if she offers water to myself, and not only to myself, but also to my camels. And sure enough, we see Rebecca coming to greet Eleazar right away, offering the water to him, and a tremendous task of lifting the stone and lifting the water to water the camels. Now we see the whole bridal aspect and the bridal custom right away because it tells us that as soon as Eleazar alighted off of his camel, he pulls out bracelets and he offers these bracelets and puts the bracelets on Rebecca's arm. And he also offers her earrings and jewelry and she invites him to the family home. And as they sit down to dinner, this is such an interesting story. As they sit down to dinner, Eleazar cannot even restrain himself. He's already had this spiritual witness. This is the girl. And he's feeling, why should we waste any time? And he presents, he presents the proposal to the family. And do you recall what the family did? Did they say, OK, Rebecca, here's the guy. You're leaving tomorrow. Do you recall what the family did? They asked her. This is really important when we're talking about covenant marriages and covenant relationships is this sense of agency. And you will notice in the scriptures that every time the covenant is starting to wear away, the knowledge of the covenant is wearing away, that's when you start seeing unequal marriages. And in fact, I always love to think about every time the covenant is restored and what those marriages look like. So for example, we have Abraham and Sarah. And although Sarah was barren and the law said the fact that she was barren, all a husband had to do was clap his hands three times and say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. But Abraham stayed married to Sarah, who he loved. And so right away we see this sweet, beautiful marriage by them. Then we see people starting to um, fall away again, and we see another restoration at the time of Moses and Zipporah. What kind of wife was Zipporah to Moses? Was she, was she uh, someone that he sort of tread upon? Was she a wet... Was she a little mouse in the corner? No. Uh, Sephora had a very strong mind of her own. And so we can continue that through the dispensations 
with the restorations as we see that every time a covenant is restored, we see strong marriages and we see agency coming back into play. When Jesus ministered on the earth, one of the greatest things that Jesus did was lift women up. And in fact, one of the most beautiful stories of Mary and Martha is not so much about Martha being busy doing things that she shouldn't be doing. It's really about the fact that in that day, it was against the law for a father or a husband to teach his daughter or his wife the scriptures. It was against the law. And so the fact that Mary is at Jesus' feet learning the gospel is a beautiful witness that the Savior intended that men and women should be equal in covenant status. And so, in fact, then when Jesus is inviting Mary to leave the women's work, so to speak, women had to be separate during guests when guests were eating. So they wouldn't have even have been invited to the table with Jesus and his apostles. It would have been their responsibility to make a beautiful meal and clean up afterwards. But Jesus is saying, ladies, come be part of this. Come learn, come learn with me. So the important thing, the message coming back here, is that this sense of the woman's right to accept that marriage proposal or to refuse it. Because she is not a slave and she is not a possession. And so it was that um, Rebecca that night said, yes, I want to go, and in fact, let's leave tomorrow. And um, the same sort of thing happened in regard to Jehovah's invitation to Israel as his bride. Now, I know that it's a challenge, and I will tell you that even for the, even for the title of this series, um, I really went through a lot of uh, conversation with lots of people about what should this be titled. I know that men, in particular, have a very difficult time with the idea of God calling them a bride. But I will also tell you that women, for many millennia, have had a very difficult time feeling that God is only speaking to men. I think it's important for us to see how often God uses a feminine symbol, such as the daughters of Zion, the woman clothed with the sun, or the whore of Babylon. And every time he's using a feminine symbol, he is specifically giving a symbol of how people are keeping covenant. I want you to just think about that. We don't have time to go into great depth about it today. But the sense is, is that he's showing us that women and men are both there. They are meant to be equal. And so going back to the ancient customs, this is what would have happened, is that this prospective bridegroom, through the friend of the bridegroom, would offer to the bride, and I know that there's going to be people that come up after class later and say, you did not pronounce this right. Can we get over that? Um, believe me, it causes me tremendous nerves and anxiety. And I listened to the pronunciation guide, and I did it again today, and I can promise you there's three or four different pronunciations for each of these words. So most of the time, I avoid the Hebrew words for safety. So the, um, for the bride price that would be given, the um, friend of the bridegroom through the bridegroom would offer jewels and clothing to the bride. And most often, um, the, the jewels and clothing were specifically meant to be married, uh, worn for the marriage. And so, uh, in fact, uh, it might be fabrics that are constructed into the clothing, or it might be actual clothing. And then to the family would be given cash or services in kind. Think about, la uh, think about Jacob who, who labored for Laban in order to obtain Rachel and Leah and so forth. Um, so it would be cash services or cash in kind. And then part of that gift would often involve coins that would be fashioned into a headband that the bride would wear at her wedding day. And then after the wedding day, she put that headband right inside the door of the house so that everyone who came into the house would be able to see how much her husband valued her. Does this help give a little more insight into the parable of the widow who lost her coin and called all of her friends and neighbors to come and help her find her coin? So depending upon what his um, circumstances were, it might be something small or it might be 
it might be more, but again, they would be treasured, sort of as we treasure a wedding ring today. So we would have these clothing and fabrics, uh, and the friend of the bridegroom presented the gifts, and then the, the terms of the marriage were presented, and the, the prospective bride and her family could say yes or no. Then the bridegroom would typically work for up to a year in building a home for the bride to come to. And there's some pretty sweet stories about that. For example, uh, for some it is said that for that, um, for that home to be acceptable and ready for the bride, that the bridegroom's father had to decide and pass judgment on whether the home was adequately prepared and ready for the bride. And so that the bridegroom could not fetch the bride to him until his father had told him the home had been complete. Now, when we talk about how does this fit into what Jehovah did with his bride of Israel, let's take a look at some of those customs and how they might fit. We talked about yesterday, for those of you who were here, we talked about that it had been the plan that all of the children who entered into the covenant with the covenant would receive the priesthood. And we will talk more about that later. But they were afraid and unwilling to come into the presence of the, of the Lord. They were just scared of him. And so the Lord gave them, in his mercy, the Aaronic priesthood, a preparatory priesthood. And in that preparatory priesthood, there was only one family of the, one family from the tribes of Israel that was chosen by God to be able to go within the temple, that is the from the tribe of Levi, the direct descendants of Aaron and his family, to go within the tabernacle or temple, and that they would also wear this beautiful clothing that remember is part of a Yes, you can ask a question. Is that in your book? Okay. Yes. Yes. Yes, it is. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, it is. And so, um, so it is my contention that just as the bridegroom was to give special clothing to the bride that Jehovah gave special clothing to his bride, Israel, through the proxy who was the priest. So in other words, think about coming out of Egypt and think about what a slave might be wearing in Egypt. And they come into the desert and they are given beautiful white clothing. And not just white clothing, but for the high priest, given clothing that is embroidered with gold and scarlet and then also wearing a golden crown on their head. Do you remember the do you remember the headband? The headband headbanded coins that was supposed to indicate how beloved this bride is. And so let's make that comparison to the clothing that Jehovah created for the priest to wear. Remember the priest being proxy for the people, that if they're not ready to receive the Melchizedek priesthood and come into the presence of God, they can they can prepare themselves through the proxy of the priest so that they can have that eventual experience of their own. Now, I want to share some of these scriptures. This is one of my very favorites from Isaiah. We're about to hit Isaiah in Come Follow Me. And Isaiah, perhaps more than any of the prophets, um, speaks about Christ as the bridegroom and Israel as the bride. So in Isaiah 61, he says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. I shared yesterday that one of the things that helped to bring me to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was the desire to belong to a church that had a temple. Specifically, because of my love of the scriptures that are contained in Isaiah, where Isaiah so often speaks about the temple and specifically speaks about all people, sons and daughters from all tribes, having the opportunity to enter into the temple in the latter days, and that's our day. And so here is Isaiah referencing being clothed in garments of salvation 
the same way as a bridegroom or a bride might be. And thou shalt make holy garments for Aaron thy brother, for glory and for beauty. This is what the Lord told Moses at the foot of Mount Sinai. And thou shalt speak unto all those that are wise-hearted, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him. So just take a look at the clothing of the ancient high priest for just a few minutes, and then think about the typical clothing that would have been given to a bride. And the sense that anyone who had come from Egypt, who had received the promise of the covenant in Exodus 19, 5 and 6 to become kings and priests, would look at clothing like this and probably be in awe. But what was it that the Lord was trying to symbolize and exemplify to his people by dressing their priests in this type of clothing? Here, Ezekiel really um, uses this um, metaphor in a really deep way. Ezekiel 16, 8 through 14. Now when I passed by thee and looked upon thee, behold, thy time was the time of love. This is Jehovah speaking to Israel. And I spread my skirt over thee and covered thy nakedness. Yea, I swear unto thee and entered into a covenant with thee, saith the Lord God, and thou becamest mine. Then washed I thee with water. Yea, I thoroughly washed away thy blood from thee, and I anointed thee with oil. To anoint with oil is to make one holy. I clothed thee also with broidered work, and I girded thee about with fine linen, and I covered thee with silk. I decked thee also with ornaments, and I put bracelets upon thy hands, and a chain on thy neck. And I put a jewel on thy forehead, and earrings in thine ears, and a beautiful crown upon thy head. Thou what, thus wast thou decked with gold and silver, and thy raiment was of fine linens and silk and broidered work. Thou didst eat fine flour and honey and oil, and thou wast exceedingly beautiful, and thou didst prosper into a kingdom, and thy renown went forth among the heathen for thy beauty, for it was perfect through my comeliness, which I had put upon thee, saith the Lord God. What do you see here? What do you see in this verse, or these verses? Do you see the loving language of the bridegroom to his bride? Very intimate language. And the connection, how important that clothing is. How important it is for the bride to prepare for her wedding day. How important it is for the bride to put on the clothing that he has given her. So John Tabetna says, priestly clothing was intended to represent the garb of God and of the angels. So if Christ's intention is to make us joint heirs with him, he's inviting us to dress as he dresses, in the temple robes, anciently through the proxy priest, and today we are invited once again to take on this great privilege. Matthew Brown, one of my favorite writers, um, wrote the fact that God himself revealed the pattern for these vestments should alert us to the possibility that they imitate the clothing that is worn by heavenly beings. And then in 2 Chronicles, um, we read that the fine white linen that John sees the bride of the Lamb wearing was typically reserved for temple clothing worn by priests and was seen as being worn by the angels in heaven. This is making reference to the fact that in the book of Revelation, when John sees and says, the marriage of the supper, the marriage supper of the Lamb has finally come to pass. We've been waiting for it. We've been waiting for him. Now is the time for him to be united with his people. And John says, she has made herself ready. And this is the way she made herself ready. To her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. So once again, this clean white linen would have been reserved anciently only for priests and kings to wear. Anything like anything to be worn on the head was only worn by royalty in the sense that one had been lifted up and exalted. And so we have these beautiful symbols from Jehovah the bridegroom to his bride. Alonzo Gasco wrote, the clothing we wear speaks as loudly about who we are, what we desire, and what we will become, as does perhaps anything else. In the temple, clothing has as much to say and reveal as any other part of the ritual. 
if we are attentive to it. Now I'd like to talk about the coats of skins that have been provided for Adam and Eve as we speak about clothing, as we speak about clothing being symbols of covenant, of clothing being gifts of God's covenant with us. It's only natural that we should turn our thoughts to the garments of skin that had been created for Adam and Eve. I've often thought about how much of a shock it must have been for them in the garden that they had never witnessed blood or death. And the first time they're going to see it up close um, and personal and, and feel this weight of responsibility for it is that when the animal is sacrificed in the Garden of Eden. We don't know what animal that was. Most believe it was likely a lamb because of the symbolism of Christ being the Lamb of God and how often lambs are part of sacrifice. But the sense being that these skins were provided for Adam and Eve before they were ejected from the Garden of Eden. And I've always thought of that, that they must have felt like they were being encircled in the arms of Christ, that they were being covered by the atonement as they went forth with this sense of hope and promise that they would be able to return again. So again, um, this is from the um, student manual, the Institute student manual, that says atonement comes from a Hebrew word meaning to cover over or hide. The connotation is not that the sin no longer exists, but that the sin has been covered over or more scripturally blotted out before God through his grace or loving kindness. It is the blood of Christ which covers sins and makes man pure so that he can receive at one with God. And so we know that um, the high priests, or excuse me, all of the priests of the ancient age uh, wore a garment also under their white robes that we saw a picture of uh, just a little while ago. And that, once again, the sense of the skins, or the coats of skin, to represent the atonement of being covered by the atonement and going forth into the world encircled in the arms of Christ. Now, Paul teaches us, very interestingly, that everything about the ancient temple testified of Christ. In the book of Hebrews, which many believe Paul wrote to Jewish priests, of course, there are no Jewish priests, there are Levite priests, but the Jews loved and uh, honored the temple and uh, were very careful about the temple services being done correctly. And so it is believed that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews to help the people understand that what had been happening anciently in the rituals in the temple testified of Christ. And so that Paul is telling them that even the veil of the temple, the cloth veil of the temple, represented Christ. So we've just made the sense of the, the um, high priest robe and the priestly robe being gifts from the bridegroom where God is inviting us to wear the same clothes that he wears so that as we come forward as a bride, we are his equal, so to speak. We've talked about the garment that was provided to Adam and Eve from the clothes of skins that represented the atonement being covered by the blood and mercy of Jesus Christ. And also we have talked about the veil of the temple itself representing Jesus Christ. So this is what Paul teaches in the book of Hebrews and what Alonzo Gaskell has to say about that. This being the case, when in the temple, we ceremonially act out our ascent back to God. At the final stages of the endowment, a person representing our Savior stands between us and the Father. Jesus Christ is, of course, our mediator, or our go-between. Since it is Christ through whom we communicate with our Father, both at the veil and in prayer, and through whom we enter the celestial kingdom, then it is also Christ who is symbolized by the sacred clothing we receive at the conclusion of the temple initiatory ceremonies. This clothing represents the crucified flesh of Christ and should be received with a covenant and reminder to always live in accordance with what that newly procured covering represents. This should give new meaning to the idea of taking upon ourselves the name or image of Christ. So as I've shared with you, 
I had a great love of the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament as a child and specifically yearned for the promise that Isaiah prophesied of that there would come a day that sons and daughters would be able to enter into the temple of God. And um, the sense when I think about how many thousands of years that was impossible, that the temple was limited to one family alone. I marvel to think that we live in that day when that covenant has been restored and we are invited to partake of all of these same blessings. And those blessings do entail wearing special clothing. Um, in general conference talks recently, we have been reminded that that special clothing is called the robes of the holy priesthood. The robes of the holy priesthood. And when we go to the temple and when we wear temple clothing, we are invited to remember and to participate in this sense of coming to know God and coming to know ourselves as God sees us. And um, it is a great privilege for us to be able to wear this clothing. Now, in speaking, uh, relating to what Brother Gaskell is sharing here about the sacred clothing we receive at the conclusion of temple initiatory ceremonies representing the atonement of Jesus Christ and being covered by Jesus Christ. Think now of these scriptures that I will share, just a few of these, where Jesus says, or Jehovah, who is Jesus, says to Abram at the very beginning of the covenant relationship they had formed, fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And then Paul in Romans seems to make a warning about any reason someone might want to remove the garment that had been received. Now we do know from ancient records that after Christ's ministry and resurrection, that in fact there were temple ordinances that were being performed by Christians under the um, direction of the 12 apostles and first presidency. And in fact, they have many of those uh, ceremonies are carved in stone in the catacombs in Rome. And so it would be that now the uh, ceremonies of the temple are actually leaving the temple in Jerusalem and that they are taking place in places like the catacombs and upper rooms and so on where the dispensation of the restoration of the covenant was being given to all who would accept Jesus Christ. And so Paul says to the Romans, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. And so if we're making that connection by Brother Gaskell, by um, Christ's words to Abram, then we might think, oh, what would be a reason that I would remove this covering that represents Jesus Christ? And Paul is saying, basically, we typically only do that if we want to fulfill the lusts of the world. I'll let you think on that, how that might affect you. So in preparing to enter the holy temple put forth by the church, um, the um, author writes, the garment represents sacred covenants. It fosters modesty and becomes a shield and a protection to the wearer. The garment covering the body is a visual and tactile reminder of covenants made in the temple. For many church members, the garment has formed a barrier of protection when the wearer has been faced with temptation. Among other things, it symbolizes our deep respect for the laws of God, among them the moral standard. I wonder if it would change any thoughts about the garment if we thought of it in the context as one of the gifts of the bridegroom, and a gift that symbolizes his desire to lift us up and to exalt us. The First Presidency has stated, the temple garment is a reminder of covenants made in the temple, and when worn properly throughout life, will serve as a protection against temptation and evil. The garment should be worn beneath the outer clothing. It should not be removed for activities that can reasonably, reasonably be done while wearing the garment, and it should not be modified to accommodate different styles of clothing. Endowed members should seek the guidance of the Holy Spirit to answer personal questions about wearing the garment. So remember what we talked about, Adam and Eve receiving that, and the sense of being encircled in the arms of Christ as they went forward. 
Now what's really interesting to me in sense of the clothing and the bridal clothing is there's this really big emphasis in the scriptures, particularly you see it as we start reading the parable of the ten virgins and then the parable of the marriage feast and someone who comes without their garment and so forth. It's really interesting to me that um, throughout the books of scripture, and in fact, the one that probably hits me the hardest is in Moroni 10. When you think about Moroni's circumstances and the fact that he does not know how long he's going to live, He's already told us what an effort it is to, to um, carve into the plates and to keep his record. And that great Moroni 10 that talks about asking with a sincere heart to know if these things are true. Well, right also in that is Moroni's injunction that we need to awake and arise and put on our beautiful garments. Now think about that. The last chapter of Moroni, this must have been very important to be included in his last words. And again, this is an injunction throughout all of the scriptures, including the Doctrine and Covenants, that we as Israel, or we as the bride, need to awake, put on thy strength, O Zion, and put on thy beautiful garments. Meaning, we're signaling to the Lord, we are now ready and prepared for that marriage to take place. We are ready for the Savior to come. And the way that we have signaled that is that one of the ways is that we are wearing the clothing he gave us to be married in. So this is that verse from John uh, in the book of Revelation that I just love, where he has seen all of the history of the world from the beginning to the end. And we're in Revelation 19 after he's seen all the plagues and all of the trauma that the saints would endure. And then finally he sees the holy city coming down out of heaven and the new Jerusalem and the celestial uh, city. And he exalts and he says, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the lamb is come and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Now, President Kimball said some time ago that we affect the timing of the second coming. He said we can slow it down or we can speed it up. According to this verse, what do you think is one of the ways we can show the Lord that we are ready? According to this verse, go ahead and shout it out. We rejoice. Keep our temple covenants, excellent, great. Keep our temple covenants because there's an emphasis here on the righteousness of the saints. But also, what's that? Get dressed. Get dressed for the wedding. Get dressed for the wedding. It's showing we want it, we want it, we want this to happen. Now, anciently, when the wedding actually took place, and oftentimes there wasn't even anything super official as a wedding, it was simply as with the case of Rebecca. Remember, we talked about Rebecca at the very beginning. Isaac took Rebecca into his mother Sarah's tent, and they, that was their marriage. So um, anciently, the sense that once that bridegroom had finished preparing the place for his bride, when he took her to the home, then the marriage was consummated, so to speak. The marriage, the marriage had taken effect. And so um, this is just very beautiful to think about the tabernacle representing the house of the Lord, and later, the temple representing the house of the Lord. And so the sense that um, in anciently they often referred to the Holy of Holies as the bride chamber of Jehovah. So I'm going to say that again. Anciently they often referred to the Holy of Holies as the bride chamber of Jehovah. So once you had made your progressive steps back into that place, then that was also saying, I am now ready to be in that covenant relationship that he refers to as a marriage with the Lord. And so the sense that we are signaling as we make our progressive steps towards the Holy of Holies, that we are now ready to come into the presence of the Lord and to be sealed in that covenant relationship with him. And so he allows us to, he allows us to practice. He allows the children of, of Moses, or the children of Israel under Moses, to practice, but the difficult thing for them 
is that because they had lost the opportunity for the Melchizedek priesthood, they had proxies who were the priests who were acting in their behalf. For us today, we are invited to have that experience to go to the temple and practice what it might be like to come into the presence of the Lord. So I shared this um, yesterday as well for those of you who are here, but I think it bears repeating, is that the Lord over and over tries to take away the mystery of it all and uses many different ways, many different forms of language or symbols to try and teach us that the um, way that we can return to him again. And so we talked yesterday about the four main furnishings of the ancient temple and those steps taking us closer and closer to the Lord and compared them to the four Passover cups. Again, a different method by which that he could teach his children, I want you to come to me. The four Passover cups were named, I will bring you out, I will deliver you, I will redeem you, and I will take you to me. And we compared those to the four furnishings of the ancient temple. The first one being that altar of sacrifice that was outside in the outer yard. And in order to begin the journey back to the presence of the Lord, one would have to sacrifice and bring a broken heart and a contrite spirit. In the law of sacrifice, we're taught in Moses 5 and 6 that Adam did not know why he was sacrificing, but he was sacrificing strictly from obedience and that the, he had been instructed to do so. After he had done this for some period of time, an angel appeared and explained to him that it was in similitude of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So again, this first step of the Passover is that I will bring you out, meaning I will bring you out of the world. And the way that we can escape the world is by offering a sacrifice of a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And we start to make our journey in, if you will, to the Holy of Holies. Now the second step in the ancient temple was the menorah to the left side inside the holy place. The menorah was taught for centuries and even millennia that it represented the tree of life. And in fact, a tree on fire very much like the fiery bush that got Moses' attention, and which represented the presence of the Lord, but even more importantly, the word of the Lord. Remember this sense of preparation and preparatory priesthood with the idea that to come to a fullness or the presence of God necessitated the Melchizedek priesthood. So at that time, Moses wasn't seeing God yet. We know later he did. But at that time, when he first received his call, it was a burning bush. Here in, with the menorah, we have the same sort of message coming across. It is the tree of life, and it's on fire. So fire, Joseph Smith tells us that God dwells in everlasting burning. In other words, his glory is so great, it can only be compared to the power of the sun, of the light of the sun. And in fact, the Shekinah, which represented the visible presence of God, was compared to a fiery pillar. And so the menorah is the tree of life, on fire, full of life, God's presence, the word of God. But in addition, Nephi got the inter interpretation from the angel in 1 Nephi chapter 11 that the tree of life represented the love of God and the atonement of Jesus Christ. And so with the second Passover cup, compared to that second step within the temple, I will deliver you. So when we accept the word of God, or we might say, as we accept the gospel in its purity as it's taught to us, as we then come closer into his presence by living to that and accepting the atonement of Jesus Christ, we're coming one step closer and the Lord is delivering us from the burdens of sin and of temptation. Then the third step was the table of showbread, and that is the way it's pronounced, showbread. It had 12 loaves of bread, and it also had wine. Now, it's very easy for us to see the symbolism of the atonement and, the, and, the, and those symbols. The third cup was called, I will redeem you. It is believed by most scholars that it's this cup that Jesus used at the Last Supper, which was a Passover meal, to institute the sacrament. And so that third cup, I will redeem you, was the promise of, of Christ's atonement 
to, to um, bring us into the presence of the Father if we will partake of the atonement. Lastly, just before the veil, just in front of the veil, was the altar of incense, which the scriptures in Revelation tells us represent the prayers of the saints. Every day at three o'clock at the hour of prayer in the temple, the same prayer was prayed. It was a ritual prayer, much like a sacrament prayer today. And this is the prayer Zacharias would have been praying that was recorded in Luke. And that is, in essence, with much more beautiful language, O oh Lord, forgive Israel our sins and open the veil to us and let us behold the face of the Messiah. Let us return into thy presence. And so that fourth cup, the fourth cup is called, I will take you to me with this promise that Jesus has made as the bridegroom, I've gone to prepare a place for you. I've gone to prepare a place for you. And where I am, you will come also and he will come and take us there. So in that Holy of Holies, only one day of the year, only one day every year on the Day of Atonement, could only one person, and that was the high priest, enter into the um, Holy of Holies. And that is, as Paul described, and again, Paul to me is the best author on explaining the ancient temple and what it meant in the book of Hebrews. Paul says the reason why only one person could go in and only one day a year is because the way into the holiest was not yet made manifest. Paul said it's because we needed the actual atonement of Jesus Christ to take place in order for that way to be opened for all of us to come into his presence. And Paul says Jesus Christ is our great high priest. He makes the point that on that day of atonement, and for those of you who will be attending my classes on feasts and festivals, we'll talk about the day of atonement tomorrow. Uh, there was a great deal of blood that was used on the Day of Atonement, a tremendous amount of blood. And blood was sprinkled everywhere within the Holy of Holies. It was sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat, on stones nearby, and even on the veil, representing the atonement of Jesus Christ. Going back again to the Tree of Life, as Nephi saw it, the atonement of Jesus Christ and his blood on the mercy seat that would open the veil to us. Now, Paul says, in order for all of that to take place, a change in the priesthood would have to take place. Again, this is Hebrews. That a change in the priesthood would have to take place. I love Paul's teachings in Hebrews to talk to anyone about why we have the Melchizedek priesthood. Because Paul said that the earlier temple ceremonies were under the Aaronic priesthood. And as he said, the way into the holiest was not made manifest because the Aaronic priesthood was a preparatory priesthood. So Paul says there needed to be a change in the priesthood in order to activate these covenant blessings to all people, which had been God's original intention inviting all of his children into the covenant. And Paul then says Jesus Christ had the Melchizedek priesthood. He says Jesus could not go into the temple in Jerusalem in his day because Jesus was from the tribe of Judah and only Levites and only those from the Aaronic uh, family could go into the temple. And he said, but because Jesus has the Melchizedek priesthood, he was able to break those bands that had been in place previously, and that through him the Melchizedek priesthood would be restored. And therefore, Paul says, he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing that he ever liveth to make intercession for them, for such a high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, offering once and for all when he offered up himself. So everything about the ancient temple was foreshadowing Jesus Christ. We can say that everything about the modern temple is also teaching us about Jesus Christ as our great high priest. Paul then goes on to say, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest, or the holy of holies, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. Now we talked about tokens of marriage anciently, 
And we know that probably one of the things that was not very pleasant was that blood used to be part of a token of an ancient marriage. In fact, the blood of the bride was shown to, show, shown to prove that a consummation had taken place. But in this particular marriage, it is the blood of the bridegroom that consummates the marriage. It is the blood of the bridegroom that seals that marriage. And it is the blood of Jesus Christ that makes it so that we can come forward as the bride and come into the covenant with him. I love this from Isaiah, and I think we'll end here. So we read in Isaiah that after Israel has, um, has gone apostate and wandered, um, the Lord is promising her that she is going to be redeemed. We're going to talk quite a bit more about that this week. That she is going to be redeemed and he's going to give her a new heart and new clothing and make her ready again to be the bride. But Zion the bride said, the Lord hath forsaken me and my Lord hath forgotten me. But he answers, yet will I not forget thee. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. These tokens of love he has chosen to maintain even after resurrection, and they are an everlasting token of his faithfulness. <coughs> Jeffrey Holland commented, it is the wounded Christ who is the captain of our soul. He who yet bears the scars of sacrifice, the lesions of love and humility and forgiveness. And so again, once again, those gifts of the bridegroom, the, the bridegroom is wearing these tokens. Now we have talked a little bit about the 10 virgins and we don't have time to go into that today. But this is where I want to end. Moses' people at Mount Sinai were not ready, even though they felt they were willing. Are we both willing and ready? And how does the Lord measure our readiness? I pray that we can fulfill the many promises and prophecies and blessings and prayers that have been prayed in our behalf through the generations, beginning with our parents Adam and Eve, and continuing with Abraham and Sarah and Joseph and Emma that we can prepare ourselves and that we can wake up and that we can recognize what God is offering to us, that we will prepare ourselves by keeping our covenants, that we will go to the temple and practice and learn how we can prepare to enter into his presence, and that we will cherish the gifts that the bridegroom has given to us. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.